This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 400. In some ways, our org charts are built for yesterday's challenges and problems. I think of this very much like TSA security, which is like it's a great system for the problems that we've had yesterday. Why do some people break through and make an impact while others get stuck going through the motions? Well, we'll be digging into that and much more in today's episode of the Read to Lead podcast. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and you've found the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. If this is your first time here, welcome to episode 400. There are 399 others you may want to check out if you like this one. I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. The point of this podcast is to help you know what books you should be paying attention to. And I can honestly say I think that's never been more true than today. I think today's featured book is an absolute must read for every employee in the country. In addition to this being episode 400, there are lots of milestones to celebrate. We'll get into that with our guest in just a moment. Her name is Liz Weissman, author of Impact Players, How to Take the Lead, Play Bigger, and Multiply Your Impact. Along the way, I'll be asking Liz to share about the key differences in how impact players think and work, why it's important to look beyond your ideal job and instead do the job that needs to be done, examples of how top contributors deal with pressure and high-demand situations, and lots more. Well, with inflation on the rise and gas prices through the roof, you're probably like most people and looking for any and every way you can save money. I got a hot tip for you. If you spend money on prescriptions, you'll want to check out our sponsor for this episode. That's Scriptco, where they not only help you save money on your prescriptions, but they ensure that those prescriptions arrive on time every month, neatly packaged right on your doorstep. In fact, Scriptco is the first online pharmacy that gives you the power of wholesale medicine and home delivery. You might say they've taken the power away from insurance companies. At Scriptco, they've cut out the middleman and given you all the power. They shop around for the absolute lowest price anywhere on the medicine you need without the insurance price hike, and then they send the best deal to your door. With a Scriptco membership, you save big with access to wholesale prices on your generic medications. Now, to see just how much you could be saving, check out their free savings calculator. You'll find it at Scriptco.com. That's S-C-R-I-P-T-C-O.com. And because you listen to Read to Lead, you can save even more. Get 25 bucks off your initial membership with the code READ25. That's R-E-A-D-2-5. One more time, it's Scriptco.com. S-C-R-I-P-T-C-O dot com. Check them out today. Liz Weissman is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter, The Multiplier Effect, and the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Rookie Smarts. She's a former corporate executive who now works as a management researcher, executive advisor, and CEO of the Wiseman Group. Liz has received the Top Achievement Award for Leadership from Thinkers 50 and has been consistently named one of the world's top 50 management thinkers in its biannual ranking. Today, we're diving into Liz's brand new book, Impact Players, How to Take the Lead, Play Bigger, and Multiply Your Impact. 
Well, Liz, I am excited to welcome you back to the podcast. I don't know if you know this or not, but there are a number of milestones that culminate with this episode, sort of uh, yours, mine, and ours type milestones. So this is, first of all, your fourth book. This is your fourth appearance on the Read to Lead podcast. There's a little bit of a theme you might be sensing here. By the way, you're also the fourth person to achieve that milestone. Wow. Uh, This month marks four years without a miss. I've managed to go four years without failing to publish an episode. And this is episode 400. Wow. (laughs) So I don't know what any of that means. we got a lot of fours going on here. But uh, yeah, a a lot of milestones between you and me. That's amazing. You've never missed an episode in four years. Yeah, the first four plus years, I've missed one here or there, but I I just made this commitment in 2017 that and I'm not going to do that anymore. And I've managed to keep that going through highs and lows and funerals and all that sort of thing uh, that that come along with life. But yeah, uh, here we are, episode 400, and I'm excited and and, and I'm willing to admit that I finagled this so that you would be episode 400 (laughs) because... Because, uh, you know, an episode like that is, is a milestone episode. And I thought, who better to have on than someone whose work I love and someone who I've had the chance to interview multiple times. And, and I'll say, you know, this about impact players. I think you know that uh, Multipliers, uh, your first book, is my all-time favorite leadership book. And I recommend it all the time as I've been doing dozens and dozens of interviews for my own book <laughs> that just came out. Multipliers needs to scoot over and make room for impact players because... This book, to me, I don't remember being as excited about a book since Multipliers as I am about this one. Uh, So that's the best compliment I think I can give it. Oh, my goodness. You know, thank you. And that means a lot coming from you because I know how many books you read. (laughs) And we've we've spoken three times before. And I read your work and Mm. love your work. Uh, And I have to say... In the process of writing this book, I've been on a little bit of a, a not, I wouldn't say an emotional roller coaster. It's not emotional. It's this kind of conceptual roller coaster. Where I have days where I'm like, well, I think this is a really good book. Like, I think it's useful. Mm. I think this book is going to bring value to people. And then I have days where I've thought, and it's not a day, days, where I've thought, this is the dumbest book in the whole world. Like, <laughs> like I'm embarrassed. This book is so dumb. Aww. Not that it's poorly written. It's just like, what an unnecessary book. Like, in some ways, mm. doesn't everyone know this? And there's nothing interesting or new. And so I've had these days where I've wondered about this. Mm. And there was actually a review on Amazon that um, is a very, very fun review and very detailed. But in it, the, the reviewer says, like, in a perfect world, this book wouldn't exist. Mm. Like, we would all think this way and work this way, but we don't live in a perfect world. And for me, that was cathartic because I thought, in some ways, I don't want this book to be necessary. Right. You know, I identify so much uh, with that. Having just released my first book, there are times when, you know, something as meta as a book about books or a book about reading. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't get much more meta than that. And I often have asked myself that same question, is this really necessary? And as I've done multiple interviews, I I am finding like you have that that those things that come naturally to me uh, to other people can be magic. And and maybe that's the case here, too, for you, is that uh, what comes naturally to you or what you see as being things we all should know. Unfortunately, as you said, it's not a perfect world and many of us don't. Well, I want to get at 
some of the uh, the research that went into this, the methodology, because it's you know your 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 book Multipliers, which most everybody uh, is familiar with, and probably your most successful book to date. You know, it was a book about leadership, and there are lots of books about leadership, but there are not a lot of books about how to be a contributor. So tell me a little bit about the methodology that went into this. Well, the first was figuring out the book was necessary because mm. you know thousands of people have written on leadership and what does kind of leadership in the new world of work look like. I'm one of these people. Mm. But there really, there really aren't many, if any, books about what does the new world of work tell us about what contributorship looks like, meaning how do you show up and contribute at your fullest? And so, you know, with multipliers, I was looking at what do leaders do that either diminish people's ability to contribute or multiply it? And, you know, what's the kind of leadership that allows people to kind of show up, think big, play big, you know, have an impact. And then, you know, I guess it was after 10 years of working with leaders on that, that you start to get, um, I call them warranty calls. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, hey, Liz, you know, I read your book and I tried that and it didn't work. And mm. so then, you know, as you're talking that through that, well, there are sometimes where the leaders maybe not thinking about it quite right or doing it quite right in a way that's going to engender the right response from their contributors. You know, I'm starting to see that the way that the contributor shows up matters as well. Mm. And I think it probably was crystallized when somebody said to me, they're like, yeah, 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 I want to be a multiplier leader, but you can't multiply zero. <laughs> and at right. first I'm like, mm, well, what's behind that? And are you saying you work with a bunch of dummies and you don't have the raw like material? And and, and he's like, no, I need to show up with the right mindsets and practices. But so do the people on the team. Mm. Like the way they show up matters as well. It's also a variable in this equation. So I decided like this needed to be studied, not just thought about, but studied. And so the way that we did this is my team and I went to nine different companies and they were all leading employers in their industry. Mm. And, you know, so the list is, um, let me see if I can do this uh, <laughs> on the tech side, Adobe, SAP, uh, Google, Salesforce, LinkedIn, Splunk. Target, NASA in the federal government, and Stanford Hospital. So there are nine. And we interviewed about 25 managers in each of these companies. So it's 170 managers in total. And we're doing a contrast study. And we're asking those managers to identify two different contributors. And the and contributor could be someone who's a frontline contributor, an artist, an engineer, a programmer, project manager, or up into senior leadership but someone that they have led or managed. And we asked them to identify two people. Both were people who were someone they considered to be smart, mm. capable, and hardworking. But one of them was someone who was doing the job well and someone who was doing the work, who was having extraordinary impacts. Those are people that we ended up calling the impact players. Mm -hmm. And so then we're really trying to build kind of the anatomy of how do they think? How do they work? What do they do? What do they not do? And contrasting these two. Now, as part of the research, we also asked half of the managers to identify someone who was not just a normal, typical, like rock solid contributor, someone who was what I call an under contributor. Mm. Which And to me, these were in some ways the most fascinating <laughs> because these were people who were smart, mm. capable, and they were hardworking, but yet they weren't doing work that was valuable. In some ways, it was anti-value on a team. And like what causes really capable, hardworking people to either just sort of go through the motions of their job or what causes smart, capable, hardworking people 
to get off track, to miss the mark mm-hmm. and to under contribute relative to their potential or to expectations. And then what causes someone of equal capability, you know, like why do those people break through and have a big impact and do work of extraordinary value and get recognized and build influence when other equally capable people are just kind of doing the job. Mm. And I I think you're making an important distinction there, as you do in the book as well, is is we're talking about not the classification of people as much as we are talking about the classification of practices and and how certain people think and work versus other people, right? Yes. And, you know, I built these profiles based on people, but it was not here's a person who's been an impact player her entire career. It's this is someone who was having a big impact at this point in time. Mm. So I'm looking at a case study of high impact behavior versus someone who is typical or ordinary. Now, that very same person that in our study who was demonstrating kind of ordinary contribution could have at another time in another company, you know, in another um, situation, been someone doing work of extremely high impact. So we're looking at essentially mindsets that we come in and out of. Mm. You know, you hinted at this a little bit, and I want to I want to dig in a little bit deeper. I think many of us, especially at the beginning of our careers, we look for work that holds our interest. And 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 you say uh, that this is short sighted that we should instead look beyond our ideal job and and, and do the job that needs to to be done. There's this chapter called Make Yourself Useful. I can't tell you how many times I've heard one of my parents <laughs> say that to me over the years. Unpack this a bit, if, if you would, and, and the propensity, especially I think, and I don't want to pick on any particular age group, but um, I think those maybe millennials, those younger, or again, those starting out in their career, I would think tend to say to themselves, you know, what am I passionate about and let me do that versus thinking to themselves, what does my boss need? Am, am I picking on millennials unfairly or, or would you say that that affects them more than it does others? Oh, boy, there's so much in that question. Um, <laughs> well, what we found in the research is that there were five situations that, that people with extraordinary impact handle very differently than other people. And one of them is how they deal with, you know, messy problems, problems that it's not her job, it's not his job, it's kind of everyone's job, but nobody's job. And <laughs> It's one of the, the like perennial problems of the modern work world is that the most important things don't tend to fit neatly into boxes on the org chart. Mm-hmm. In some ways, our org charts are built for yesterday's challenges and problems. I think of this very much like TSA security, mm. which is like it's a great system for the problems that we've had yesterday, but right. they don't it's not necessarily a great system to deal with like the current threats in the environment. And so like org charts and job descriptions, it's kind of an approximation of what's important, but there's always this work that sits in between that is like out in no man's land. And Mm. like, who's going to go and do that work. And what we found is, and, and this Jeff was part of what I thought was so fascinating about how managers described these ordinary contributors. Because here's what they said about them. They said, uh, these are people who do their job and they do their job well, like sometimes extremely well. Like, oh yeah, Alice, Alice, like she's brilliant at her job. They do their job. They follow direction. They take ownership. They are focused and they carry their weight on teams. And in some ways you think this is an ideal team player. Mm. This is someone you would absolutely want on your team. But when things get messy, when things are ambiguous and uncertain, 
these ordinary contributors and this way of thinking falls short, Mm. like stellar in ordinary times when like work is kind of routine. Mm -hmm. But when something drops in unexpected, the ordinary contributor mindset is I'm going to do my job. I'm going to do the thing that I'm responsible for Mm. or the job that I want to (laughs) do. And what we find is the impact players, they don't just do their job. They go out and they do the job that needs to be done. You know, they serve where they're needed. And I chose that title name, you know, for that chapter very much on purpose, (laughs) which is like, you know, it's an orientation to make yourself useful. And for me, it came out of, I mean, it certainly was evident in the research. It was very, very sharp in Mm. in the examples we saw is that these impact players were rangy. They like didn't sit in these comfortable boxes called jobs and job descriptions. Like that's their base camp, Mm. but they're, they're like venturing out into no man's land. Like nobody's got that covered. Let me go there and see if I can be of help. And for me, this was an orientation. I fortunately developed early in my career, but unfortunately it wasn't really of my doing. Mm. I was sort of coached into this. And, you know, I I think like a lot of people and and maybe you're saying, are we a little unfair to millennials? Like maybe we pick on this generation just because like it's the generation coming has been coming into the workforce. We're now looking at Z coming into the workforce. Well, I came into the workforce the same way. Right. You know, I'm older than the millennial generation, but I came in like fired up. This is what I want (laughs) to do. And probably wouldn't surprise you, Jeff. What I wanted to do was I wanted to teach leadership. Like, this was my calling. This is my destiny. This is what, like, I love. It's what I'm good at. It's what I want to do. And I came in looking for that job. And, you know, fortunately, someone said, hey, Liz, if you want to get a job in teaching management, maybe you should go get some management experience. (laughs) So I took this backup job at Oracle, uh, which turned out to be an amazing experience. But, you know, I'm working for about a year as a program manager and, um, you know, I'm looking for this opportunity to like, okay, who wants someone to like build a management training program for this growing company? There's this organization inside that's hiring. They're the internal training group and they mostly do uh, technical boot camps. So Oracle is gobbling up technical talent coming in from all of these top universities. So we're hiring like the top of MIT's class and Caltech and, you know, Berkeley and Stanford and Harvard and Georgia Tech and, you know, RIT, all these institutes. We're like gobbling up this talent and this group runs boot camps for it. And I think I'm going to get a job in this group and they're going to certainly expand to include management training. That's my thinking. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in this interview and I'm interviewing with the VP and I'm answering his questions. And then it's kind of my turn to like, I don't know, take control of the interview a little bit. And so Mm -hmm. I make my case that Oracle's rapidly growing. We've now got thousands of people. All these young engineers are getting put into management. And, you know, I can see that diminishing dynamic happening there. And I'm like making my case like Oracle needs a management boot camp. And I would love to build this. Like, pick me. Put me in, coach. And... (laughs) And his reaction was priceless. He's like, and he wasn't rude. He was just like, Liz, that's great. We think you're great. But your boss has a different problem. You know, she's got to figure out how to get 2000 new college graduates up to speed in Oracle technology over the next year. Like what would be great, Liz, is if you could help her solve that problem. And I knew they needed people to teach the Oracle tech stack as part of the boot camp. But first of all, I'm not a technologist mm. and I have no interest in this. And you know, I want to teach leadership and Bob wants me to teach programming to a bunch of nerds. It's kind of how my brain's thinking about it. Like, like this is not my ilk. 
Mm. And but it's like somehow in his comment, which was soft and subtle, I heard Liz make yourself useful. Like we we're all working on this problem, and you can either go off like in left field and pick daisies, mm. or you can help us with our most critical work. And I'm like, hmm, I think I know I know which one of those I want to do, but I know which one of those is the smart thing to do. The smart thing is to go little me, big us. And, and go work where I can add the most value to what's important to the organization. And I did. And it was full of its unpleasantries about having to learn how to teach programming to a bunch of hotshot programmers. But I think it was like this first time I learned, like, do the job that's needed, not the job you want or the job you have. And it's not like you need to spend your whole time saying, oh, forget about me. Let me just do the let me do the company thing. It's by making that investment. I built a lot of credibility and influence and I built a lot of knowledge about what was central to the business. And it opened up so many opportunities for me. And in many ways, I get to do the work I love today because I I built it on that foundation of, okay, what's important to the business and let me point my energy there. Although that wasn't the job I wanted, I didn't want to teach programming. About four or five days into doing this work, I kind of fell in love with it. I'm like, you know what? This is interesting. I love programmers. I love learning how to think like programmers. I'm a better researcher because I did that work. And and so it wasn't like I worked in misery. It was just not what I wanted to do at the time. There's this thing you say at one point in the book to me that that is that is almost biblical <laughs> when I read it. Uh, when you let go of your agenda, you can be summoned to a higher agenda. There mm-hmm. you can create greater value and find greater joy. And I wrote under that, this is biblical. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. I don't think I intended for that to be biblical, but (laughs) in some ways it was because there was a, a little workshop I was doing, playing with some of the ideas in the book. And someone who was in the workshop was a worship leader at a large um, church led by, you know, kind of a, a well-known celebrity pastor. And when we talked about like working on the agenda, you know, and the agenda being the things that are important to your clients, your boss, like, you know, their agenda, he's like, wow, I don't think I'm working on the senior pastor's agenda. Mm. Like, He did his job. He did it well. He was hardworking. He kept his leaders informed. But he said, I don't think I'm working on the agenda. And so we we devised this little plan. And I'm like, okay, I want you to do this because he was saying his weekly email notes to his boss, the senior pastor, were like getting read, but like crickets. No response. (laughs) No response. Like no love coming from these these updates. And I said, okay, here's what I want you to do in that weekly email. I want you to do two things. Number one acknowledge what the agenda is. So what he said is like, here's what I understand to be the most important work of this organization. And number two is here's how I'm working on what's most important. Mm. He did those two things instantly, a different response. Wow, this is great. Fantastic. So he's like, writes back, wow, this is a big deal. I'm getting appreciation, guidance, recognition, support. And you know, it's because he's working in like the flow of energy. It can be easy for some. And, and I tended to have this personality in my last regular job as it relates to these ideas we're talking about. And and that is uh, 
step on toes or, or maybe borderline run roughshod over folks. Uh, you, you, you outline this ebb and flow of stepping up and then stepping back. Uh, talk, talk about the, the stewardship mentality that, that your research revealed with regard to that. Yeah, you know, this was kind of the second area that we found that impact players handle differently than others is when roles are unclear. Mm. You know, this is, again, one of these common problems. Everyone I go to lunch with who works in the corporate world, summer during our lunch, the conversation is going to come up of, well, I'm working on this, but it's not really clear what my role is. Like, is he in charge? Am I in charge? Like, what's her role vis-a-vis my role? And like, who's kind of the boss of this? Now, you know, control and who's the like bossy control, like has gotten a bad rap over the last decade or two. I'm one of the people who have been attacking this way of leading, mm. but in some ways, controls gets a bad rap, but we we want to be in control. Like we want to know who's in charge. We don't really want leaderless organizations. We just want to know like who's leading this. I have a practice like when I join a meeting, I usually say, okay, who's the boss of this meeting? <laughs> and and what I mean is who's the boss for the next 60 minutes. Mm. I'm not asking who's the boss of the universe or who's in charge of all of us forever. It's just like, who's in charge of this right now? What we find is that most of these kind of uh, messy problems, um, ambient problems, kind of low grade issues where no one's really assigned to drive it forward, but yet it's a problem. These are like leadership vacuums and they're all across organizations. And what most people do when they encounter a leadership vacuum is they, they look up for clarification of who's in charge, like give me the the racy model on this mm-hmm. or, you know, clarify who's the boss of this project of us. And what the impact players tend to do is they kind of have no time for that. It's they step in and fill those leadership vacuums like, oh, we're in uh, we have a leadership void. We don't know who's in charge. You know what? Like, would it be helpful if I led us through this conversation or, hey, I'm happy to step up and lead that project or initiative. So they step up very easily, gracefully, willingly and assertively. But I mean, this is no big surprise that people who have a lot of influence and impact in the world or in an organization are quick to step into a leadership role. No big newsflash. What was so interesting is how willingly they step back. So it's not this um, step in like, ooh, I see an opening. I'm going to like make a land grab here. It's I'm going to provide much needed leadership. This lack of certainty is an opportunity for me to provide clarity and leadership. And I'm going to do that job. And when the job is done, I'm going to step back. And I don't mean they sort of like renounce their titles and organizations or they're like, oh, I don't want to be the boss. Let me step down. Mm. You know, they may have this permanent position of VP or, you know, department manager in the organization. It's they step into these voids, but then they step back. And I think this is a really beautiful way of leading. It allows organizations to move much more um, agilely mm-hmm. in uncertain times. And I like to think of this sort of as a V formation mm-hmm. is like, you know, it's taking that hierarchical pyramid and it's just not turning it upside down. It's just knocking it over. And now it's a V formation. And the metaphor I think of for this kind of leadership or the mascot is the flock of migrating geese where they fly in that V formation. It's efficient. The scientists estimate, I actually went in and did some research on this, is that that V formation allows a flock to fly 71% further than solo flight. Mm. So they're stronger. They can fly further in this V formation. And one of the, the birds like flies out in front 
breaks the wind, like creates that drag. So it's easier for the whole flock to fly, but it doesn't stay in that lead spot forever. Mm-hmm. Like, like you don't look up at the sky and like see that, okay, the lead goose, you know, I was just like tired and it's like now falling from the sky in exhaustion. <laughs> when they have kind of done their part and created that pull, then they rotate back into the formation and another bird comes in and takes that lead role. And and I think like so many organizations, you have senior leaders or the always leaders who are exhausted. And then you've got the rest of the team that's underutilized. And they're exhausted because they're not challenged enough. They're like hired from lethargy rather than from exhaustion. And so like this allows everyone to take their turn. Like I'll lead this, you lead that. Like, I think we want people inside organizations who can like be the boss. And in the the two o'clock project meeting, they step up, they take the lead, Mm. they lead assertively. But then in the three o'clock meeting, they walk down the hall and they join another meeting and they're a participant and they follow with the same Mm. energy and engagement that they led. And maybe they're following a peer or following someone who works for them, technically. In in reading your book, I realize I've got a bit yet to learn in this area. If you were to quiz the staff at my publisher, they would probably tell you that Jeff thinks he's in charge of every meeting. (laughs) I just come in and I kind of, I I say, okay, here's the time we have. Here's what needs to get done. Let's go. And I just take over (laughs) regardless of who's called the meeting. (laughs) It's just shameful because I have never been accused of that in my career. Yeah, no, I'm I'm like you. I like I default to, you know, if there's a slight leadership vacuum, I'm in a group of people and they can't decide who's going to have dinner. I'm like, okay, (laughs) someone needs to be the boss. I'll be the boss. And I don't know if I'm getting older or wiser or what, but I'm like, you know what? You don't have to be the boss of everything. Just like make sure that a boss gets appointed. Like Mm -hmm. I I can't be in a meeting that doesn't have a boss. Like, you know what? Someone needs to direct traffic and ensure we get the job done, but it doesn't have to be me. I just need to know who it is. What are some examples, Liz, of how top contributors deal with with high pressure and high demand situations that you've seen in in the research you did for the book? Mm, Well, this is one of the other kind of everyday challenges. And, And that's really what we found is that the impact players, they differentiate themselves in the everyday challenges that we deal with everywhere. And one of them is kind of a mounting workload where our, our the demands and our work, like that load is increasing faster than resources tend to increase. And I think most of us are experiencing this, which is technology has enabled us to work more, work faster. It hasn't decreased our workloads. It's actually increased our workload. Mm-hmm. And most people are feeling now this pressure to work more, to do more. Like I can't humanly do this. And what we find is that most people in this situation, they carry their weight. But when that, when a team is like facing this, this heavy pressure, they look to the team and they look to their leaders for help, like help me with this. And what we find the impact players do is their orientation is not just to carry their weight, but to make the workload lighter for everyone. So they make work light. And when you think about the people that you've worked around that are just high impact people, they're not difficult to work with. And this was one of the big surprises in the research, Jeff. I was really wrong about this. I figured in studying top contributors, there were going to be a few prima donnas, Mm. divas, some bullies, like Mm -hmm. some brilliant jerks. Yeah. We went back and checked all the interview transcripts, like 170 of them. And not one of these people was a prima donna. Mm. 
Not one of them was like, okay, I'm the star of the show. Here's what you all need to do for me. They're people that they, they work well on a team. They're team players and they're easy to work with. They're people who are pleasant to work with. They're a joy to work with. And it's not just that they're lovely people. Some are, it's that they're easy to work with. And, you know, when you think about our workload and I would encourage everyone listening to think about your workload, like what makes work work? Mm. Some of that comes from the actual workload, but some of that comes from the phantom workload, like the people issues, the drama, the politics, the tantrums, the, you know, back and forth bickering, the land grabs, the, Mm. what the impact player does is they don't play that game. They're like, I'm going to focus on the work, not the phantom workload, and I'm going to be easy to work with. They're people who like, if let me get such a specific thing. And this is one of my pet peeves is if they're going to forward one of their colleagues or a client or a boss, a long email chain, and they're not going to forward that and say, what do you think? Mm. They're going to forward that and say, in these 12 notes, this is the issue that got debated. You'll see that there's a variety of opinions on this. We need to decide, do we hold this meeting in February or March? Can you weigh in on this? Mm. Like, Because they've already done all that reading and they're going to make it light for the next person. They're going to be high output, low word count. <laughs> I like that. Which is super hypocritical of me. <laughs> this book is pretty densely packed. It's, you know, they they play their chips well mm. in a meeting. They just they take away all of that friction and high maintenance approach to work. So that okay, in some ways, there are people who just don't make hard work any harder. And we love working with them. I've got a handful of questions, a whole new set of questions I've never asked a guest before, but I'm going to start asking guests with this interview that I want to get to in just a moment. So you get to be my guinea pig here. Uh, But before I do that, most of my questions to you thus far has come out of part one of the book. Anything else you want us to know from part two or anything I didn't ask that you want to uh, impart to us? Let me offer one thing that I think will maybe simplify it. Mm. You know, for someone who either chooses to read the book, but I guess by the time you write your fourth book, you you understand that not everyone in the world is going to read your book. <laughs> you know, and, that, and let me try to make this light and easy for people is that there is kind of a common theme that goes across this is that the impact players handle ambiguous uncertain situations. They tend to look at these situations that are a little or a lot outside of their control. And instead of avoiding them, they tend to dive into them head on. And the metaphor I like to think about this is, you know, I live on a coast and so there's an ocean. And when I see a big wave coming, my te- my reaction is normally like run away, you know, turn, <laughs> get out of town. And inevitably I get hit by the wave, tossed and tumbled um, and, and thrashed and trashed in the wave. But then if you watch an experienced ocean swimmer or surfer like my son, the big, massive oncoming wave, what does he do? He dives into it head on. Like you take it on and he comes out and I'm like, okay, he's not eating sand. (laughs) And he's like moving on, like to go out to surf, to like go where the real fun and the play is. And so a lot of this comes down to when you're in these uncertain situations, do you look at them through a lens of threat? which is, this is bad. I got to, I got to avoid this. Or do you look at it through a lens of opportunity, Mm. which is, you know what? Roles are unclear. It's an opportunity to provide leadership. You know, it's a messy problem. Mm. You know, it's not my job per se, but it's an opportunity to do valuable work that will enhance my job. Um, You know what? This obstacle was not planned, but this Mm. 
is such a big distraction that it's actually a chance for us to rethink. So in some ways, like if someone wants to develop more of this impact player mindset, get started with this first practice of figure out something that's important to those you serve and make it important to you. And Mm. when you get into these situations, particularly these five differentiators, just put on the opportunity goggles. Like what does it look like if you see this very same thing as an opportunity to add value? Because we tend to do like we tend to naturally take different actions if we can just see what's the opportunity to add value in this situation. Well, Stephen R. Covey is, of course, famous uh, most of all for seven habits of, of highly effective people, habits that uh, over the course of the last 30 years have found themselves uh, discussed primarily in the context of work and in teams. And as I've interviewed now, thanks to you, 400 authors uh, over the course of these last few years, I have stumbled across, I think, five personal habits that most every one of them uh, practices uh, to one degree or another that all lend themselves to the realization of their biggest dreams and highest priorities, which is how I define uh, success. And so I'd be curious to know sort of where you fall among uh, these five and to what extent you, you practice them. And there's no no pressure to, to, to make up any answers. If you don't practice it, just say so. Uh, but habit number one is this thing, Liz, I call dancing with discomfort. Mm. Um, I, I think successful mm-hmm. people do that on a regular basis. Uh, you know, lean into discomfort. You mentioned uh, the water and waves. I, I sometimes say ride the wave of discomfort. Give us an example, if, if you can, uh, of how you attempt to step outside your comfort zone on, on a regular basis. Well, you know, let me start with a confession. I work in the professional development space, leadership development, professional development. I am one of the laziest people around personal development. Like, I don't think I I don't have any goals. I don't necessarily have (laughs) habits. Super lazy about this. But I have this one killer habit, Mm. which takes care of everything else. It's like hitting the head pin, knocks everything else down. So my habit is I just say yes to hard things. Mm. I call it the naive yes. And what I do is I let this impulsive part of me take over. So when someone asks me to do something and it's interesting and it's, I don't say yes to everything. So like if someone asked me to do random things, like I don't feel any obligation to say yes to that. But when somebody gives me an invitation, like, hey, Liz, you know what? We need someone to do this, or this is a problem that needs to be solved. Or like, I remember once like Time Magazine wanted me to write an article about the wearables market and how with Apple Watch coming out, what this was going to do to wearable comparison. They wanted me to write an analysis over this and they wanted it done overnight and submitted 30 minutes after Apple made their Apple Watch announcement. And, you know, um, my publisher contacted me. They're like, Liz, and I'm like, I don't know the wearables market. I'm not, you know, like there are so many reasons to say no, but I'm like, that's interesting. I'm going to say yes to that because Mm. I don't know how to do that now, but I know just enough to get started. So I say yes to interesting things that are hard. And I say yes before my brain kicks in. It's that's the naive part of the yes. Yes. I say yes, and then I have no choice. So like I said, I'm lazy. So what I do if I need to learn how to do something is I just essentially sign a contract that says, Mm. I'll do that. I'll write a book. I'll speak on this topic. I'll write an article overnight. And I think it's like as leaders, we, we should give people work that is comfortable enough that they can say yes to get started, but not 
something they know enough to finish. Mm. Like that's the sweet spot where like, okay, I can kind of get started with that task, but to finish it, I have to really wrestle with some things. I have to learn some new things. So my practice is I just say yes before Mm. I learned to say no. You mentioned the Apple Watch uh, specifically. I happen to be wearing one right now. Uh, That and other forms of of technology, of course, in this age are always pulling and vying for our attention and making it difficult or at least a lot harder to, to, to maintain focus. And that can impact the, the extent to which we read with any regularity. And habit number two, I believe, is to ritualize uh, your reading. What do you do, if anything, to ensure, Liz, that you dedicate time regularly to the habit of, of, of reading? Or is there anything that you do to, to make sure you dedicate time to it? So I used to have a habit that really worked on this, which is I traveled a lot mm-hmm. and I just said categorically no to airplane movies. <laughs> so I'm 57 years old and it wasn't until I was about <clears throat> 54 that I I watched really my first airplane movie. <laughs> <laughs> now, I can't say that I haven't like looked at other people's screens and like, oh, what's going on with that? The horse was <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I sort of intuited what's going on in a few movies. Yeah. But that was my time. Internet is off. Mm. I also don't buy um, internet service mm. on airplanes. It might be because I'm too cheap to do it. But <laughs> I use airplay time as reading time and think time. Mm. And, you know, with the pandemic, I haven't been on airplanes as much. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to find other ways to do that. But, um, you know, again, I solve it by acknowledging my lack of discipline to do it for its own sake. And I usually say like, oh, yeah, I'll have lunch with an author friend and I haven't read their book, but I want to. Mm. So I'm going to say yes to lunch, which will force me to read it before we go to lunch or yes, I'll write an endorsement for that person because it'll force me to read the book. So I use these kind of contractual ways to do things, which is kind of a guarantee that I'm going to do it because left to my own, Jeff, I don't know that like I would be nearly as disciplined. Well, I don't want to answer this third one for you, but I think you touched on it with your answer to the first habit. And this third habit I've identified is this this process of doing an energy audit occasionally, examining your energy and understanding what you're doing and what you're involved in that gives you energy versus what you may be involved in that zaps your energy. So what, I guess the question is, what steps do you take to increase the amount of time you spend in areas that give you energy and lessen the amount of time you spend in areas that zap your energy? And the reason why I said, I think maybe you've touched on this is when you talked about saying yes to those hard things. Is that, would that qualify as one of the ways you, you, you accomplish that? Like I have a couple criteria that I use for what to say yes to. Mm. And, you know, some of it is how valuable is this mm. and not how valuable is it to me? Because then I would say yes to things that involve money. <laughs> so it's like, how valuable is this work to the greatest number of people? And so I, I think about that. I think, um, is this something I use that criteria of like only do what only you can do. Mm-hmm. Like, is this something that somebody else could contribute to just as well as me? Like maybe this would be a better opportunity for them. Like I try to do things where only I can do it. And sort of, I guess part of that is this idea of native genius. It's, mm-hmm. you know, I explore the concept in multipliers, but a lot of people kind of have different terms for this idea of like the thing that you uniquely do. And Most of us have lots of energy when we're working where our unique talents or gifts or the way our brain works are engaged. So, you know, and I'm always like, what's something I don't know how to do, but I know how to do just enough of it 
that I, it's like traveling in a foreign land. It's like, okay, that's foreign. I don't know how to do it. So I want to go there, but do I have something I can take with me that will Mm. help me navigate that foreign space? Well, like almost like a survivor item Mm. on survivor Mm. or naked or afraid or one of those. Yeah. All the shows my wife watches. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, what can I take with me to help me survive in this area? So I'm drawn to things I don't know about. Like I'm drawn towards my incompetence more than my competence, I think. Interesting. Okay. Uh, almost done here. The fourth one, assemble your advisors is what I call it. Assuming you attempt to connect regularly with like-minded people who encourage you and uh, challenge you and help hold you accountable. What does that tend to look like? for you? Mm. Well, it's starting to look richer and more formal than it's ever been. So for, Mm. I just hit, you know, a big, I just hit a big four milestone, Jeff. And my four milestone, you know, my number four milestone is our fourth child, fourth of four. Oh, wow. Just went off to college. And so the burdens that I have been carrying on my shoulders are just a little bit lighter with him off. Mm. We're not entirely empty nest because we still have number three at home, which he's so fun. But for years, for 27 years, I have said no to all extraneous or, you know, discretionary kinds of professional associations and networking and community because I'm like, I need to spend that time with my family. And I'm now able to do more of it. And over the last few years, I've been able to do more. So there's just several groups that I spend time with. Um, the Marshall Goldsmith, the MG100 group. I have a lot of wonderful colleagues there. The Thinkers 50 mm-hmm. community. Um, I've developed some incredible like researcher, thought leader, author friends where we commiserate. And I think as you know this, Jeff, because you've talked with 400 authors, some of them twice, uh, <laughs> is is that it's a it's very lonely work. Yeah. yeah. Being an author is a little bit like being a senior executive, like it looks kind of glamorous, but it's really, really lonely work. And I have found that this community is not, for the most part, there's, it's not a competitive community like, oh, I want my book to outdo your book. It's <laughs> this wonderfully supportive, collaborative community. And I have several author friends um, who I, I turn to for guidance, for critique, for sanity checking, for like getting me back, get my head back on straight. Um, and I have a handful of them. Mm. Michael Bungay Stanier is one of my favorites. Uh, yeah, I, I know uh, he's mentioned uh, in your book, I think in your acknowledgments, and I've had a chance to interview him as well. Great, great guy. I love him. Well, the last one, the last uh, personal habit is master your mornings. How important is a consistent morning ritual uh, to you? Is that something you practice? And if so, what? how does it tend to unfold? It, well, for a lot of years, it was get kids off to school and mm-hmm. and and that. Uh, but for me, even when I had little kids, um, mornings are exercise. So that's first mm-hmm. thing. And again, I exercise first thing in the morning because I am so lazy. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I admire people who exercise at lunch or in the evenings. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not getting sweaty. Now that I'm not sweaty, like, no, <laughs> I have to have a lion chasing me to exercise <laughs> in the evenings. But I, I do that first thing. It like brings me a lot of energy, good thinking time. Um, and for the last seven years, I teach an early morning Bible study class uh, to teenagers oh, cool. at 630 in the morning. And I don't do it every day because there's days I travel, but that's been a big part of my morning. And, uh, you know, you could say, oh, wow, that's a great way to like center your day spiritually. It is that, but it's also a great day to, it's like, it's a guaranteed humbling experience every morning. 
Teenagers humble you. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> I've taught a few in my stints as an adjunct over the years, for sure. Well, uh, she's got four kids. This is her fourth visit. We've gone four years without a miss. This is episode 400, and this is her fourth book, <laughs> Impact Players, How to Take the Lead, Play Bigger, and Multiply Your Impact. A delight always to talk to you, Liz. Thank you so much for being here yet again to talk about your latest work. Appreciate it. Mm, Jeff, it is a pleasure, for sure. (laughs) That's great. Liz getting in her own version of what I would call a dad joke. Love it. Hey, if you've enjoyed the Read to Lead podcast for a little while, or maybe even quite a while, I would really appreciate it if you would consider sharing episode 400. This is a milestone episode, and anything you can do to help me get the word out about the podcast is greatly appreciated, and I can't think of a better guest to share about than the one in this episode, episode 400. So will you do that? It's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 400. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 400. That's also where you can go to get a summary of this episode and dig more deeply into the resources and links we talked about and learn how to connect with Liz online if you'd like to do that. But I so appreciate you coming back again and again and giving me reason to put out these episodes week after week now, four years without having missed one. You are the reason I do it. So thank you for letting me know how much you appreciate the content. Hey, and don't forget about our sponsor. Check them out at scriptco.com to save on your prescription medications. It's S-C-R-I-P-T-C-O.com. You can use that free savings calculator and use the discount code READ25, R-E-A-D-2-5 to save 25 bucks off your initial membership. Well, hey, that's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.